Welcome to Opinionated with Ben Schiller. Ben is a features editor at Coindesk. He's a seasoned business journalist, and he'll be talking with some of the most fascinating contributors to Coindesk Daily opinion section. Ben is joined by two Coindesk reporters, co-hosts Anna Batakova and Danny Nelson. This episode is sponsored by Unique One Network and MIMO. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hi, this is Opinionated. I'm Ben Schiller with co-hosts Anna Bedekova and Danny Nelson. Hi, guys. Hello, everyone. Hello. And today we're joined by a very special guest, Jameson Lopp. He's a veteran Bitcoin developer, professional cypherpunk, and CTO of Casa, which is a security solution for Bitcoin. Lop is also known as a fervent Bitcoin maximalist, which is something we're going to get into today with him. And uh, welcome to the show, Jameson. Hi, great to be here. The Good. whole maximalist thing is a funny thing to dig into. <laughs> well, it certainly depends into on that. who you're asking. I know it's a bit of a label and we, we don't want to sort of label you with that too much. What do you mean by professional uh, cypherpunk on your website? I just wondered what professional oh. cypherpunk does. Well, you know, it's kind of a joke because this is another funny thing that I kind of laugh at whenever it seems I go on any sort of podcast or publication or whatever. In fact, one that I did just last week, I noticed that you know in the byline, it usually describes me as a quote unquote, a self-described cypherpunk. I've talked about this a number of times, essentially that that is a requirement to be a cypherpunk. There's the, the very description of a cypherpunk is that you are an advocate for privacy enhancing technology. So you have to be a self-described cypherpunk. This is not a title that is bestowed upon you by some authority or even by other people necessarily. It's something that you have to proactively go out and, and be doing. And so professional cypherpunk is kind of my play on that is, you know, this is something that I'm doing full time and I'm being very open about. And that can also rub people the wrong way. There are some people who would say that, oh, if you really care about privacy, you wouldn't be on social media. Or you wouldn't be talking about all these things that you're doing. But I think that kind of digs into a deeper issue that we will touch on later is that this is important, I think, knowledge sharing. If we want the world to be able to make use of these awesome technologies that are being developed, then we have to talk about them. We have to talk about the failing of our current society and architecture and just the way that we go about our lives in order for people to understand that these are vulnerabilities, or you may want to consider them vulnerabilities, and therefore you may want to take action to be proactive about how to you know, better shore up your stance in your everyday life. Completely agree. So we're just going to start off by talking about an article you wrote for Forbes recently. It was actually July 4th, Independence Day, and it was called Bitcoin Redefining FU Money. And it was interesting, I thought, because you talk at the beginning how FU Money money actually has a sort of uh, preceding life before Bitcoin. I didn't actually know this. Could you just talk about how that term came about and how you think it sort of evolved during the Bitcoin years? Yeah. So this is interesting. When I was doing more research into it, the furthest back that I was able to find a reference of money was actually to Humphrey Bogart, who apparently he would keep a $100 bill in his dresser and this was, I think, back in like the 1920s or something. So $100 was a lot of money back then. 
And when he was asked about this, he basically said that that was his money. You know, it helped him remember and remind himself that he did not have to stoop to taking roles that he didn't want to do. You know, he had the optionality to decide, you know, what he wanted to spend his time doing. And that became more of a thing in Hollywood, especially in the 1970s, as more and more actors started amassing huge amounts of wealth and you know, found themselves in the same position. So basically, the few money started out, as far as I can tell, in showbiz. And then it seemed to just kind of migrate to other industries over the decades as those industries started amassing more wealth. So that's, that's when we saw basically Wall Street and finance, where you know, people became multimillionaires and billionaires and amassed their wealth and started to think differently about you know, how they were spending their time and resources. And then eventually in the 2000s, basically the past couple of decades, that moved to Silicon Valley as well, where we saw a, a great deal of wealth concentration as capitalists and entrepreneurs managed to build you know, highly leveraged businesses via technology where they were you know, able to amass large amounts of resources by the efficiency gains that they were finding and creating for other people. But it's taken on a new meaning in the Bitcoin era. It's not just about like having lots of money and having the optionality and having the ability to turn down roles. It's something more about freedom and privacy as well, would you say? Yeah, so the whole point uh, that I got to after sort of explaining the history of this term was that the reason that you money has been equated to having millions and millions of dollars is because of the, the resource requirements for protecting those assets. Traditionally, if you have a ton of assets and you want to protect them over a long period of time, then you have a lot of things you have to worry about. You have to worry about market dynamics. You have to worry about inflation. You even have to worry about just single points of failure and the fact that Pretty much all of these assets are not under your control. They're actually under control of various specialists, usually other financial advisors or, or legal specialists or what have you. And so you don't want to put all of your eggs in one basket. That creates a high amount of risk for you to have a catastrophe. And in order to manage all of this variety, diversity, complexity, and whatnot, you generally have to hire a bunch of people. And that costs a bunch of money just to oversee the maintenance on a year-to-year -year basis. So some people will say it, you got to spend money to make money, but you definitely have to spend money to keep money if you have a lot of it. And the thing that really changes the paradigm shift with these bearer crypto assets is that my argument is that they greatly reduce the cost of defending them. You no longer have to hire teams of people and create complex legal structures and, and worry about all of these externalities, you can actually essentially build your own bank with technology or with the help of a few other people that are, are not going to charge you thousands and, and millions of dollars to do so. It's to the point that you, know, you can achieve the same level, or I would say even a higher level of defensibility for your assets, where really all you have to spend is time, you know, maybe 
a few hundred dollars worth of hardware, so on and so forth. And you can achieve this level of security that I would argue is greater than anything that a traditional bank or traditional financial institution can offer you because you can actually completely eliminate these single points of failure. But that kind of gets to the point of you know, shilling what I've been doing for a living for <laughs> six years now and you're know, trying to create these robust uh, security structures. Well, talking about the cost reduction thing, I would say that the strategy that you are talking about comes with its own costs. And if we are talking about really big fortunes in Bitcoin to build this kind of autonomous cypherpunk bank that is only controlled by you and that is secure, actually would probably require a certain level of technical proficiency or hiring some other professionals that would do that for you, which in this case would be not very different from, you know, hiring banksters and uh, financial consultants. And at least it requires a high level of personal discipline, which uh, like, you know, you, you need to remember where your private keys are. You need to remember how your system is designed and what steps you need to take when there is a threat and so on and so forth. And it looks to me that not too many people are willing to do that. And especially even if we're talking about the wealthy people, they're willing to pay money for other people to take care of them, to, to bother about all that security. So do you think that in the future, the, the number of people and of wealthy people who would want to you know, take the task of that personal discipline and learning and gaining technical proficiency, you know, learning all the intricacies of self-custody of their digital assets, do you think that we will see more people caring about being that financially autonomous or it will be just, you know, a, a small minority of cypherpunk millionaires who would care about that and everybody else would pretty much go to a crypto custodian and leave all the worries to the, another intermediary? This is the billion dollar question, right? And I've had to answer this question a lot, especially on VC pitch type calls. You know, they always want to know well, what's the market size? Do people actually care about the stuff? So on and so forth. So I think there's a lot of different facets to this issue. I think most obvious and naive one is, well, it's obvious that people care more about convenience than they care about almost anything else. You know, this is very obvious when it comes to privacy. And a lot of the privacy-related stuff that I've done, it seems that the high-level privacy issues in the world just keep getting worse and worse and worse, and almost nobody really cares about them. Nobody wants to put in the effort to try to improve their privacy unless they've had some sort of direct failure that's had a huge, obvious negative consequence to them. You can make a same type of argument around sovereignty, you know, financial sovereignty, so on and so forth. People are used to having third parties that they can go to when they're confused, when something goes wrong, when they want any kind of help, basically. And so I think that this system, it's neutral. This, the system of Bitcoin as a network, uh, the way private keys are set up and used, it doesn't care about that. As a result, you're going to have people doing all kinds of different schemes. Now, well, obviously, we have a lot of people who they just go to an exchange, they buy the asset, and then they never do anything else with it and never leaves the exchange. For them, 
that may be all that they're even aware of. They don't even understand that this is different from when they go to Fidelity or E-Trade or whatever, where they can actually withdraw these assets to self-custody. And so they never even really look into it. Or you know, plenty of people have told me they were just too afraid to do that. And they felt like leaving the assets with a specialist custodian is probably safer than doing it themselves. And that is certainly going to be the case for, I think, a lot of people who they don't go in depth into understanding the system and the values of the system. But I'm approaching it from the opposite standpoint, which is that it's not going to happen unless we can make it easier for people to actually achieve self-sovereignty. So if we understand that convenience is one of the highest priorities for people, then we need to continue to make it more convenient for them to achieve the most robust security model that the system has to offer. So once again, you know, that's what I have been working on for six years now, where there's a ton of people in this space that are doing really crazy cutting edge stuff that's hard to even explain. And I've spent the past six years doing boring old private key management, you know, really low base level stuff, because I feel like that is the foundation of all of the, these other things. That if, if we can't solve the private key management convenience issues, then we may end up with a system that looks very similar to the current system where you know, most of the money is held in a, a small number of hands with you know, specialized third-party custody uh, providers. So that's important for me, I think, just from a really high level of trying to push the space in a certain direction. And since we can't force anything upon everyone, we have to entice them with better products. There's so many blockchains and NFT marketplaces these days, and none of them work together. Introducing Unique One Network, the easy way to build multi-blockchain DeFi-enabled NFT marketplaces, where instead of picking your favorite blockchain, you let your users and creators pick for themselves. Powered by Polkadot, Unique One Network lets you service NFT creators and collectors across art, photography, philanthropy, gaming, finance, and more. So do yourself a favor and head over to uniqueone.network now to learn more. That's uniqueone.network to learn more. Looking to exit the volatility of crypto, but don't want to deal with the inflation of the dollar? Minting PAR using MIMO DeFi is exactly what you're looking for to get ahead of that. PAR is the number one Europeg token on the market, minted at an incredibly low 2% interest rate and backed by collaterals like Ether, Bitcoin, and USDC. Stabilize your portfolio. Open a vault and access the power of blockchain through MIMO protocol today at MIMO.capital. That's MIMO, M-I-M-O, dot capital. So you're building that convenience layer for those who are looking for that to get into self-custody. But as you said, for personal security, a lot of people, the vast majority of people seek out convenience and they're not really going to change their password from it being the same one across all their accounts until they get owned and until the system fails. And then they realize, okay, I need to fix this. And at that point, then maybe, at least in my opinion, in my experience with personal security for my family, then they'll start looking for the convenient way to enhance their security. And I think that Bitcoin and self-custodying might have the same dynamic where 
you know, it is extremely important to have that convenience layer because if you don't, then people will, won't even get through the front door. But will they even be searching for that front door without some catastrophic event that signals to them the importance in the first place of having self-custody? Like, do you think that we might not see such a, a big a sea change for Bitcoin if there isn't some sort of event that shows people the value of self-custody? Yeah, I mean, I would argue that there have been a lot of those, though I would probably say I'm somewhat surprised that there haven't been more. This is one of those issues where people keep repeating the mistakes of the past. And, you know, obviously Mt. Gox is like the big one, but it's, you know, that was so many years ago that I think a lot of new people may not even know what it was or understand just how much of the like wealth of the system just went up in smoke overnight. Though we, you know, we still hear about it because the bankruptcy issues are still ongoing after what seven years. (laughs) But there are there are still plenty of other you know exchanges that go up in smoke. I guess there was Quadriga was probably one of the more recent large ones. We've also had one of the lending providers I think melted down late last year. That was Cred. I've been somewhat surprised that we haven't had more of the lending providers melt down because, you know, I'm sure that they are, at least some of them are engaging in risky practices. They are black boxes to us. It's not really clear what level of risks they're taking with the funds that are being sent to them. So I'm not too worried about that. You know, I think that we are going to continue to see more examples of people losing funds because they trusted them to third parties. But once again, it's, it's hard to quantify. This is a kind of back and forth cat and mouse game in the system where there will be failures here and there. Some people will learn from them. Other people's won't. And that is, I think, going to be the name of the game for the foreseeable future. So with all the DeFi craze that, that we've seen happening around during the past year and so many new projects and coins, and exchanges and use cases emerging. As a crypto developer, have you ever been tempted to join that party, you know, to, to do something else other than Bitcoin, to work on some new DeFi stuff, or that's just too far from you, you're all in Bitcoin? So I do play around with some of them. I guess one of the more public things that I do is I I actually run a bunch of nodes for a lot of these different networks, at least for short periods of time, just to test them out because I want to better understand what is the resource requirements, what is the security model if you want to be as sovereign within one of these other systems as I know that you can be in Bitcoin. And a lot of these systems really fail in that regard if you want that same type of security model. And I think you know, it is an inherent problem where some of them are never going to be able to achieve that simply because of what their other goals and attributes of the system are being engineered to optimize. It's a matter of time for me. You know, time is really the most scarce resource. And if I wanted to spend my time building on some of these other systems, I could, but that would be, at, of course, the detriment to all of the projects that I'm doing on Bitcoin. I feel like Bitcoin has that first mover advantage and I want to continue pushing it forward. And I understand that, you know, in some ways we are competing with a lot of other people, a lot of other projects. But if I did work on some other projects, you know, there are certainly 
attributes that would be like red flags and turnoffs and prevent me from ever doing that. So like, for example, I seriously doubt I would ever find myself working on a, a project that is like venture backed. You know, I would want to work on a, a project that is built as a open community. You know, if it's something that has been funded as tokenomics or whatever, where like a bunch of the pre-mined tokens go to some venture firm or other early insiders, you know, that's the type of thing that turns me off there. It's about incentives. You know, what, what are each of these networks? It's interesting to observe them and their attributes, because what we're really talking about is some group of people has created a new game. And by a new game, I mean they have designed a system of rules and anyone who wants to can now decide whether or not they want to play that game. Do they agree with those rules? Do they want to operate inside of that rule set? And at an even more meta level, the quote unquote governance of how that rule set gets changed over time. You know, in a, in a sense, it is kind of like politics, except it's much more fluid than your, your traditional local or nation level politics. So I guess that might explain a little bit better, like how I decide what games do I want to play? Well, I want to play the games that I believe are the most fairly designed. And then one of the big topics that you've written about in the past, and you've actually emphasized that people need to grapple with this, is the idea that, you know, Crypto is not as private as people might think that it is, at least for Bitcoin specifically. And Bitcoin privacy is hard to accomplish, although certainly important. As this space develops and as the media headlines, I'd say the mainstream media headlines, uh, proliferate, we're hearing more and more about crypto's use in criminal enterprises. Of course, you know it's not, it's not completely fair to say, well, Bitcoin is enabling crime. The dollar enables crime, but it is also true that it is being used in new and different ways of, of crime, means of crime. And that's forcing or prompting the government, at least, to take a closer look. Just yesterday at the White House, there was the announcement that they're going to continue to work with mayors and small towns to increase their ability to analyze cryptocurrency transactions. Now, this doesn't mean Bitcoin, but it also doesn't not mean Bitcoin because that's the one that people know and are thinking about and are using. So how are you thinking about that dynamic as you're looking at this, how the space is developing, that question of the government's ability to and desire to look into individuals' transactions and try to find patterns? Yeah, I mean, it's not great. You know, pretty much all of these networks have terrible privacy. There are, of course, a few privacy coins out there that are certainly better from an objective standpoint, but I think that they haven't really gotten a whole lot of usage, probably once again, because people don't care about privacy until it's too late. So, you know, obviously I want to see better privacy on Bitcoin, on every crypto network. This is kind of getting towards the, the idea of like crypto anarchy. You know, what, what really happens if we have the technical tools available to us to shield us from surveillance states, from corporate surveillance, so on and so forth. It just seems like such a small amount of the total resources being put into the space are being spent on privacy that I'm not 
particularly bullish that it's going to increase meaningfully anytime in the near future. You know, there are various improvements on Bitcoin that will improve in a little bit, but it'll by no means be a bulletproof solution. I think that at least on Bitcoin and most of these other networks, like in order to actually operate from a somewhat semi-private standpoint, it's a really high bar. You have to have a really high level of technical sophistication. You have to understand what all of the different data leaks could be. You have to understand what the different types of surveillance that are being performed upon these networks actually is. You know, it's a lot more than just the blockchain analytics side of things. I mean, there's entire network surveillance that's happening on these networks. So you have to worry about, you know, even where you're broadcasting your transactions from, for example. You know, it's sufficiently complicated that I don't see us having any real bulletproof solution on most of these networks for the foreseeable future. I certainly think more people should use Monero and Zcash. For whatever reason, though, they don't seem to be doing it. I thought Monero was the number one criminal coin. That's what the FBI used to say, I think. It's, it's hard to say. All I really know is that over the years, it seems like at least the price of Monero has been more stagnant than a lot of these other things, which just leads me to believe that demand for privacy is not as high as demand for other things like aping into crazy smart contracts that are promising you know 10,000% APR. What is your sort of long-term thinking about Bitcoin as a project? And, and you, you mentioned this interesting dynamic before about how its unchangeability is one of its sort of, that it makes it more trustworthy and actually brings people on board to, to the network, but it maybe is a disincentive to development. I mean, how much do you think we're going to see DeFi, for instance, be a Ethereum, largely Ethereum-based system? Or do you, do you see some of that migrating to the top of Bitcoin as well? Well, at least for the short to medium term future, it seems to me like most of the competition in DeFi is coming from a number of other networks that are essentially seeking to be like, in many cases, EVM compatible. So, you know, if you're EVM compatible, that means if someone gets upset with Ethereum because they think the fees are too high or, or you know, some other aspect of the network is not meeting their needs, it's basically a copy-paste operation for them to go and spool up the same smart contract on some other network that may have you know, more competitive attributes. So I think that that's going to suck away at least some of Ethereum's dominance. You could make an argument the other way, though, that the sort of interoperability of all of these different smart contracts being on Ethereum, you know, that sort of has its own network effect that would incentivize people to stay and continue building on Ethereum. There's only you know, a couple of projects that are doing DeFi on Bitcoin that I'm aware of right now. You know, obviously, there is the EVM-compatible sidechain, Rootstock sidechain. I'm not aware of a ton of projects that are working on that yet, but it might just be my own lack of knowledge of not paying too close attention to it. It's worth keeping an eye on, but it doesn't seem, at least at this point, to have gotten to an inflection point where you really see a lot of momentum built up. It's, it definitely feels like it's still very early. So what are the most interesting, most exciting things for you regarding Bitcoin development, Bitcoin ecosystem, Bitcoin adoption that you, you want to be watching in the coming months, years? What, what excites you most right now? 
Well, I've got a number of projects ongoing. One of them is just that I've been getting a lot more into trying to understand Lightning Network you know, running a routing node on there, which I'm putting capital into and trying to better understand you know, what are the challenges of trying to get yield on the Lightning Network, as it were, you know, compared to, of course, DeFi yield, which I think is comparatively a lot easier. You just put your money into a contract and take it out before you get rug pulled. <laughs> on the like, Bitcoin protocol side of things, there are a number of things coming down the line later this year and, and early next year that are going to be good for us as a multi-sig self-custody provider. So I'm interested in features that are going to improve the privacy of our users so that you won't even be able to tell from on-chain or network analysis that our users are, in fact, you know, CASA users or even multi-sig users. There's going to be more functionality coming down with Taproot and the scripting capabilities there that I'm interested in trying to build more complex type of Bitcoin locking scripts around. And so that basically means instead of only having a Bitcoin address that is encoding a script that says, you know, to spend from this, you have to assign so many keys you can start to put other conditions in there. Think of it as kind of escape hatches of ways to have alternative spending conditions. You know, perhaps if several years go by and you have lost too many of the keys, it would be really great if you could have other spending conditions that say, okay, we have a emergency backup way of spending these funds, you know, if, a certain amount of time has passed and you no longer have access to these keys. Much like with, I would say, like Ethereum and more complex smart contracts in general, complexity is a double-edged sword. It's very exciting to think of the things that you could do, but it's scary because there's also a big possibility for shooting yourself in the foot if you do something wrong. So it's going to be a, a long, slow road to try to do this the right way, but I am intrigued by the possibilities. Okay, thanks very, very much, Jameson. That was uh, excellent. I think we better wrap this up. Danny Nelson, thanks very much. Anna Bedekova, thanks very much. And thanks, uh, Michelle Musso, for producing this. And thanks to our guest, Jameson Lopp. Do you have a handle or something people can go to, Jameson? You bet. It's easy to get to my website. It's lopp.net. And my Twitter handle is also just lopp. Great. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Cheers. Thank you, guys. You've been listening to Opinionated with Ben Schiller, Anna Batakova, and Danny Nelson. With guest, Jameson Lopp. Today's show is produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau, with music by Ender. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player.